Welcome to the Unity Baptist Sermon Podcast. I'm your host, Brad Calloway, and I serve as the student and education pastor here at Unity. In today's episode, Senior Pastor Heath Bauer brings a message from the Faith Foundation series, and it deals with church government, and we're looking at the overseer qualifications. This is a continuation from the previous week. If you missed it, you can find a link to it in the show notes below. Stay with us to the end and find out how you can connect to Unity Baptist Church. Glad you're here this morning. We're continuing a series called Foundations, which is a little misleading. It's more or less a series of series that we started by looking at Acts chapter 2, where God listed out all the things that the early church did, and we're applying that to us today. What should we be doing as a church? We looked in Revelation, what should a church be qualitatively? But now we're looking at what we do, how we organize ourselves, the activities that we do, and how we do these in a biblical way. And so the first of these series is on church government, everybody's favorite series. You know, how do we govern the church? Okay, but that's very important because if we're not organized in a biblical and godly way, we're not going to accomplish anything. If we have poor leaders representing us, we're not going to do what Jesus called us to do. And so church government may not be on the highest list of your personal priorities as to what you want to hear in a church service, but it's very, very important that we organize well. And so the first thing that they mentioned is that they remain steadfast to the apostles' doctrine. We don't have apostles today. We talked about that already. We don't have apostles and prophets so much as we do elders and deacons. Again, we say the term elder, that's synonymous with pastor and overseer, okay? So if we just say pastor, we say elder, we say overseer, we're talking about uh, the same office. So we have elders, okay? Elders are those that we, as a church, we ordain, we set apart, who are gifted in the speaking gifts. Again, remember, there's three broad categories of spiritual gifts. You have sign gifts that belong to the apostles. You have speaking gifts, okay, that are those who are leading in teaching, preaching, administration, and then you have serving gifts, helps and mercy and so on. And so the other office we have is the deacons, and they are those that the church lays hands upon, and we set them apart as representatives of the church in these service gift areas, helps and service or whatnot. Uh, Diakonos itself, the word for deacon, means a servant. And so we have these two offices in the church. We do not have offices beyond these offices. We simply have these two. So we've got to figure out, do we get the right people in place? Now, I'm going to teach on the qualifications of both pastors and deacons at the same time. You want to know why? Because they're fundamentally identical, given one qualification, which is for those who are of speaking gifts, they have to be apt to teach. If you can't teach, you can't be a pastor. Okay, so we're going to look at these qualifications of elders and deacons together. That we're looking for people of high moral integrity. Okay, so we're not just curious that a a pastor needs to be fun, engaging, and charismatic in in a personality sense. We're not hiring a game show host. We're hiring a pastor. And so what we look at is their heart. Are they above reproach? Are they uh, people of high moral integrity? You know, there's a story in China, a parable, if you will, told in China about an emperor who is aging, and so he wanted to pass on his, his empire to somebody who is of high moral integrity and character. And he thought, well, I'm going to issue a challenge. And so he brings all the children of the kingdom and gathers them together and gives each one of them this pot of soil, and he gives them a handful of seeds. 
And he tells these people, if you are, these are the seeds, by the way. He says, are seeds of my favorite flowers and things. If you can go home and you can raise these for a full year, and we're going to come back and we're going to evaluate your progress. And the emperor himself will choose the next emperor based upon how well you are able to raise these seeds of the emperor's favorite flowers. And so all the kids go home and they start working at it. I'm sure mom and dad were helping them like you did with your kids' science projects, right? You want your kid to be the next emperor. And so they're all helping these kids out. And uh, there was one little boy named Ping and he goes home and he was really excited. You see, he was already a really good gardener, gifted in that area. And he thought this is gonna be fun. And so he goes home and he does everything that he knows to do. He waters it, uh, he fertilizes it, makes sure it has adequate sunlight. Um, but it's taken a long time for the, the seeds to pop through the soil, but he, he kept at it. Well, he looks back next door at what the other kids are doing, and their, their pots are growing up quite a bit, and he's just stunned. He's like, I'm normally a gifted gardener. What's happening? And so he and, he, and the other kids start to come over, and they see what Ping is doing. They're laughing at him and say, wow, you think you're such a great gardener. You can't even grow these seeds the emperor gave you. Well, eventually, months and weeks go by, even a full year goes by, and Ping still has nothing to show. And so he thought, at least I'm not going to be a thief. I'll give the emperor back his pot. And so all the other kids, they start parading in these flowers to the oohs and ahs of the audience. Ooh, look at this one. They have this big, bushy rose bush, or this one here, this, all these carnations, or I don't know, whatever the flowers are that they're growing. And they bring them before the emperor, and the whole crowd are just cheering and chanting, and oh, this surely is the next emperor. But then little Ping comes up, uh, expecting a, a, a rebuke, right? And so he just offers the emperor this empty pot. And when he does, the whole crowd is laughing at this boy. You think you're something. Well, the emperor takes this pot, and he motions for everybody to be quiet. And then he makes an announcement. He says, many of you who brought forth here many giant bushes of flowers. You have far exceeded my expectations of what you could do with those seeds. He says, this boy here brings me an empty pot, and the crowd erupts in laughter. Ha, ha, ha. He says, what you don't understand is the seeds that I gave you, I boiled first. You shouldn't have been able to grow anything with these seeds. In fact, those of you who have these big bushy flowers, he says, the only thing I can tell you for sure is that you broke the rules. You didn't use the seeds I gave you. Only this little boy, Ping, here was honest enough to tell me he has nothing. And he brought me the empty pot. He did it my way, even though he didn't see the right, uh, the, the kind of success that his neighbors were seeing. There's a direct parallel for that with the church. What God is looking for are people who are willing to be people of the book, people of the empty pot. People who are willing to do church God's way with, more, with morality and ethically and with integrity. The churches around us, sure, they may have giant bushy flowers, but it doesn't mean they necessarily followed the emperor's rules. God wants to make sure that our elders and our deacons are people of the book, people of the empty pot, people who are willing to, to plant and to water, but wait for God to be the one to give the increase. That's what a leader is called to be. That's what deacons are. That's what elders are supposed to be. And so to determine who these people of integrity are, God gives qualifications. You can open up if you want to 1 Timothy chapter 3. You could equally open up to Titus 1 if you wanted, but we're just looking at 1 Timothy 3 today. First thing we're going to look at in verse 1 is the pastoral call. People have often asked me, and this is anytime I teach Bible college classes in China, they would, this would always be one of those questions. How do you know if God is leading you to serve in Christian ministry, to be a spiritual overseer in some way? I tell them there's an internal and an external call. Now, by the way, we use, we use this term call, and I know what you mean, and I'll use it at times too, but calling 
Uh, in the New Testament, nine times out of ten is referring to our salvation, not somebody's call into the ministry. The Bible doesn't use the term call here. It uses a different term. See if you can spot it. He says in verse 1, this saying is trustworthy. If anybody aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. And so the Bible doesn't use the term call most often to talk about whether or not a person should be considering ministry. He uses what two terms? Aspire and desire. That word aspire means, I want you to picture a baby laying on his back in a crib and he's reaching up at that mobile. He, even though he can't get it, he's still trying to get a hold of things. He's reaching out to apprehend, to take hold of. That's what that word aspire means. You desire something enough that you're doing what it takes, uh, taking action to make sure that you reach out and you apprehend, you, uh, you take hold of that ministry. The second word, desire, uh, means a strong, consuming, overwhelming passion for something. In other places in the Bible, it's translated lust. Now, we don't usually talk about a person's lust for the ministry. Son, did God, do you have a lust for the ministry? Did God call you? And we don't use that term because it feels a little odd, doesn't it? But that's the term the Bible uses, that you want something so badly, you're taking the necessary steps to prepare and to get yourself there. It consumes your thoughts you desire it so intensely. That's that internal sense of call. Let me give you three reasons why you don't enter the ministry, can I? First uh, Peter chapter 5, and verse 2. It says, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Do you see the three reasons why you shouldn't be a pastor? why you shouldn't be a deacon even. You shouldn't, you shouldn't seek out spiritual leadership for these three reasons. Number one, under compulsion. Everybody's just telling you, hey, you need to do this. Now, I would see this a lot of times in China. You've got these house churches. Somebody has to lead. Right now, they're just a Bible study, and they look around and go, somebody's got to lead. Uh, Mike, you've been here the longest of anybody. You ought to pastor. And Mike's like, mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm not pastoring. And we go, no, no, come on, Mike. You've got to do it. That's a poor reason to do it. You don't do it because mom and dad or anybody else is pressuring you. Well, you've got to be a pastor. We have three pastors in our family lineage. Okay, pastoral work is not something we pass on through the DNA. So domineer, or, or under compulsion, we don't do that. You have to do it willingly. Another reason is not for shameful gain. You don't go into the ministry, ministry to make a lot of money. Okay, I'm looking at you, TBN. Okay, you don't go into the ministry to make a lot of money. You've got to do it for the right motives and reasons. You're not here to fleece the flock to become rich. The third reason you don't become a pastor is simply because you like bossing people around and telling them what to do. Okay, he says, do not lord over the flock. Okay, you're not here. This, by the way, sometimes pastors uh, can get the idea that this is my church. This isn't my church. This is Jesus' church. The Bible says that Jesus is the head of the church. I'm not the head of the church. But frankly, friends, neither are you. Deacons are not the head of the church. Pastors are not the head of the church. Who's the head? It's Jesus. How do pastors and deacons work together to discern the will of the head? It's right here in God's word. So we have to be people of the book, people of the empty pot, people with the moral integrity and ethics to follow God's word, even when no one else is willing to do it, we're going to follow this book, and we're going to together figure out what God's intention for the church is. So these are three poor reasons to do it. However, we don't just throw people into the ministry because they have a desire to be in ministry. Well, God, God, God told me to be in the ministry. Did you? Uh, one of my old uh, 
homiletics professors was talking to my dad, a guy named Bob Domikos. And he was talking to my dad. He says, I get all these guys come into Bible college, and they say, God has called me into the ministry. He says, I listen to them preach, and he says, you better check that again. <laughs> he says, there's a lot of people who have an internal desire. They don't have the moral character, ethics. They don't have the tools to do it. So we don't just take someone into the ministry and put them into the ministry because they said, I had a dream last night, and God told me to be a pastor. Okay, there's that internal desire that you have, but we follow that up with a, if you will, if I can borrow this term again, an external call. What's the external call? You guys as a church have to look at these people who say, God has led me to be a deacon. God has led me to be a pastor. And you as a church have to decide, are we going to ordain these people or not? If both of those things aren't there, God isn't leading you to serve right now. Both you have to have a desire internally, and the church has to confirm, yes, we see that on you. We lay hands on you. We identify with you. We confer upon you the authority of the church to move forward. We agree with your assessment. That's what a church has to do. And so, but we have to have qualifications for that. What kind of people are we looking for to serve as elders and as deacons? There's one overarching rainbow. Okay, I'm just going to it's like a rainbow. There's one overarching idea with multiple colors in it, okay? The overarching thing that you're looking for for pastors and deacons is this. You must be above reproach. He says therefore an overseer, uh, someone who oversees spiritual ministry, they must be above reproach. Okay? Above reproach is the whole command. We're looking for above reproach people. And then he goes, "But I don't just expect you to know what that looks like. I'm going to give you several examples." of what above reproach means. But this is the overarching command. This is the umbrella. They, they have to be above reproach. Above reproach means this. It's, it's a compound Greek word that comes from the word meaning to seize or to grab. Think of cops and robbers, okay? They seize and grab a robber and they hold him for justice. Why? Because he did something wrong and he can hold you. This word has a prefix that means you can't seize. Nobody can hold on to you and say you are in a state of current moral or ethical failure. What about our distant past? What about it? Okay. Are pastors and deacons perfect and flawless people from, the, from their youth? No, they're not. I mean, remember, Paul was a murderer. Paul persecuted the church. God specifically said, why are you persecuting me? Paul persecuted God. And then God still saw fit to use them later. You see, God can redeem us. But you can't currently or very recently be in a state of ethical confusion. So what, do, what are these different qualifications that we look at? We looked at last week at length a one-woman man, but we only looked at one aspect of it. Is it a moral standing? Is it a marital status? Okay, not going to rehash that sermon. Watch last week if you want to uh, talk about that. But one thing that is clear here is that a pastor is supposed to be a male now, I know that doesn't play nice with modern culture. It doesn't because culture moves on. But if you go ahead and study philosophy sometime, you'll notice that culture is cyclical. It moves on, and then it goes back. It moves on, and it goes back. It moves on, and it goes back. What's the only thing that doesn't change? Right here. So either we can just go with society and say, oh, yeah, but society, we've grown up. We've learned. No, society hasn't grown up. Society's gotten darker. All society does is we have better technology. Peter had to walk to someone's house to give him a message, we have iPhones, okay? That's, the heart of man is still the same. No, man has not progressed beyond the Bible. And the Bible says that a pastor is to be the husband of one wife. And by the way, this was a problem in Paul's day too, not just today. A lot of times we think of this as a modern issue. Do we ordain women as pastors? 
Biblically speaking, no, we don't. A woman can't be a husband of one wife. Okay? <clears throat> Paul knew this was going to be a problem. So in the context of pastoral qualifications, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, okay, and in verse 12, he says, uh, he gives a clarification. He says, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now, quiet here doesn't mean women aren't supposed to talk in church. Okay, let's not take it further than the text is. He's talking about quiet as opposed to in a speaking role. She's, we're not going to put a woman here teaching you, even if they're not a pastor, we're still not going to have them preaching or teaching to you. Why? Because of 1 Timothy chapter 2. And Paul says, by the way, this isn't even a result of the fall. He says because of creation. That this idea of in the institutions that God created, these spiritual institutions, the home and the church, God, for whatever reason, has asked the men to lead. Now, if you just gave me my choice, I'd let everybody lead. Because in a church, can I just tell you what I found? I found if you want to get something talked about, give it to men. You want something done, you give it to the women. Case in point, look next door. Next time you get a chance after the service, go down and see what the ladies did there in the gym. If I gave you guys this job to set up that for a family meal, we'd have bean dips and a big TV, okay? If I could put women in power here, friends, let me tell you, I'd be the first in line. But I have to follow God's word. I have to do whatever it says. And Paul is extremely clear here. So if you're going to make an argument, you're going to argue not from a biblical point of view. You're going to argue from culture. And you're going to show why culture should overpower the Bible. We're not going to play that game in this church. The Bible is always our final authority in faith and practice. So women, if you want to go be a CEO, go for it. You want to be a president of the United States, go for it. There's nothing in the Bible about that. Go be everything you want to be. But in the two institutions that God created, God, for whatever reason, has asked for you men to step up. <clears throat> so now we're going to look at some of these other qualifications. Let's go from 2 to 2A. Two a. a pastor is to be sober-minded. Okay, this sober-minded, we get the term sober uh, because it's a Greek term that means literally wineless. Now, he's not talking about their drinking right now. That's a different one. Wineless was the term that people used to describe as somebody who, is, who has their wits about them. They're alert. They're clear thinking. They're observant about things. They're serious about serious matters. Okay? They are sober-minded. They're intense. They're undistracted. They're, they're singly focused. To be a pastor is to be self-controlled. This is a fruit of the Spirit, an evidence that the Spirit of God is working in your heart and in your life. It means that a pastor and a deacon, by the way, remember, we're talking about deacons here too. I may say pastor, you may as well think deacons too. These qualifications are the same, barring apt to teach. They both have to be above reproach. So a deacon and a pastor, they have to be self-controlled. They have to be able to control their lips. They have to be able to control their appetites. They're not people who are running away with, uh, you know, sexual perversion in their life. They're not, they're not, self -con they're not controlled by food. Uh-oh. <laughs> Do we need to get a scale out when we check deacons and pastors? Do we need to put them on a BMI chart and say everybody above 25 BMI is out? Might be tough to find pastors and deacons at that point. But the point here is this. A lot of times we just look at one qualification. Are you divorced? Nope. Woo, thank God. We don't look at all these other qualifications here, like self-controlled. We can't be people who are given to our flesh. To see a pastor or a deacon is to be respectable. This word just means orderly, that these are people who are known for paying their bills on time. When you look at their life, they may be busy, but you don't think chaos. They get done the things they need to get done. You can count on them. They are dependable people. They are respectable. They are follow-through people. They are self-starters. Is that important in the ministry? 
You don't have people banging on your door saying, hey, get to work, kicking them in the pants. Hey, what are you doing? Get back to work. Deacons and pastors both have to have an internal sense of God is motivating me to do something. If you have to wait for somebody to tell you what to do, God is not motivating you. You are not God called. You don't have that desire that's forcing you to reach out, to apprehend, to take hold of. Somebody who's truly God called, who has that internal desire from God, you usually have to slow them down. Okay? There's that internal guy that's saying, I want more from this. I want to be more for God. That has to be there. 2D, they are to be hospitable. Now, guys, this doesn't mean we, we peruse Pinterest, okay, and that we're great at decorating things. If I throw you a party, you're going to be very disappointed. But what I can do is what he calls us to do here. This word hospitable in the Greek means a lover of strangers. In the ministry, you have to love people. Isn't that right? You have to love people. If you don't love people, go herd cattle. Don't you be a pastor. Don't you be a deacon. If you don't love people, don't, don't serve in one of these two offices. You have to love the people. You know, there's plenty of other jobs you can go get. You can be an accountant and just deal with numbers. You can go design websites. You can deal with animals. But friends, deacons and elders, we work with human beings, and you have to be able to attach to people. You have to be able to put time and, and, and be in their space, and you have to love them, and not just one type of person. You have to be able to have a love of all types of people, a lover of strangers, even people who aren't like you, people who are from out of town, people of different cultures and races. You have to be able to love all people. If you can't love these people, get out of the ministry. Now, 2E is able to teach. Now, this one, deacons, you can sit back and relax. This is not you. This is me. This is Brad. This is Theron. You have to be able to teach. Now, when it says able to teach, it doesn't mean that I have you rolling in the aisles going, wow, this guy is so funny. I just love to hear him preach. It's not that. Able to teach means that you are a person devoted to this book right here. You're committed to it. You read this Bible. You know how to interpret this Bible well, and then you can communicate clearly. Apt to teach means you can communicate clearly. Doesn't mean he's the funniest guy on the block. Doesn't mean he brings you to tears every Sunday. It, it means you're able to communicate God's word. Now, that's required of pastors because pastors, elders, overseers, they serve in a teaching gift capacity. 2F, now this, we're back on to deacons and pastors. He cannot be a drunkard. Is that, is that important? Do we really want Otis Campbell? Okay, you with me? Andy Griffith? Do you want Otis Campbell, the town drunk, stumbling up here to give God's word and, and to teach it? We can't have that. You cannot be a drunkard. But I will say, you know, we laugh about it. Nobody would ever come up here and preach drunk, I don't think. Um, but you can't be a drunkard in your private places either. There's a lot of stress in ministry, both as a deacon and as a pastor. You can't be the kind of person that takes that stress and then turns to the bottle. You can't be the person that looks to substances to dull the pain of, of things that people have done to you. You've got to be able to take that stress and take it to the Lord to be able to cast your cares on him, not just try to dull your senses with these things or to distract yourself. So pastor can't be a drunkard, okay? It doesn't say he can't drink, now, but I'll tell you for, my, for me and myself, I'm a teetotaler. I don't drink one drop. I mean, I've had NyQuil in the past, not enough to call me a drunkard, but I had some NyQuil a time or two. But that's about it. I don't drink alcohol in any form, and there's a good reason for that. Proverbs 31 talks about this. Verses 4 to 5, he warns leaders in particular, just stay off, just stay off the alcohol. He says, It is not for kings to drink wine 
or for rulers to take strong drink, lest they forget what has been decreed and pervert the, the rights of the afflicted. How much more important those who are handling the word of God and dealing with people? We've got to be alert. We can't be people who are, have our senses dulled. Number 2G, this is another obvious one. Nobody ever debates this one when we're bringing in pastors and deacons. Deacons, pastors, you can't be violent people. You can't be starting fights. You can't solve things with your fist. I mean, can you imagine? You got a couple people, they're gossiping about the pastor, and I walk back there into the foyer, and I overhear them, and I go, what's that you said? You want to say that to my face? Do you want, do you want to go at it? Are you feeling lucky? Well, how about you and I? We go settle this like men today. You can't have a pastor doing that. You can't have deacons doing that either. Now, granted, we're probably not going to... By the way, there's nothing to do with you. You're just in the front row, so... You have to know. There's sort of, we ought to tape it off. It's like the Shamu splash zone here. If you're in the front two pews, you're going to get called out. But you can't be that guy whose, whose honor is so easily wounded. They've just got to, you know, their first gut reaction is to fight. Deacons, pastors, you can't be fighters. He says also he is to be, instead of violent, to H, he is to be gentle. This is a word that means yielding. Now, that doesn't mean weak. A lot of times we hear the word yielding, we think some mealy, weak little person. No, it's a, think of a soldier. Someone who knows how to line up under God-given authority. That's what gentility is. That's what meekness is. Meekness, by the way, it's a fruit of the Spirit. Meekness simply means that you look at a God-given authority and you don't think of yourself as so great that you can't line up under authorities that God gave you. You're meek. If you are not a meek person willing to line up under God-given authority and you just always have to be the lead, you always have to be in charge, you try to control and domineer people, you can't be a pastor, you can't be a deacon. You are disqualified. A lot of times we want to put the domineering people in charge. Whew, they get a lot done. Let's let them do it. You do not want those people in deacons or pastor roles. They cannot be the people who are domineering. They've got to be gentle, willing to line up under God-given leadership. Gentle people... People who are yielding are people that, again, don't get their feelings hurt that easily. And you, and you have to have that. You can't have your feelings hurt too easily in ministry, whether you're a deacon or a pastor. They're quick to pardon the offense of others instead. You see, the reason is, is because ministry is a lot like setting a mountain lion free from a trap. Let me explain that one. Ministry is that way because I've told you about the video I've seen before where this guy, he's freeing a mountain lion. He's stuck in this trap and this mountain lion, these two men approach and they're, they, they feel bad for it. They didn't just put it down. They wanted to free it. And so they come up to this mountain lion. This, he's swiping at him. He's, does a mountain lion growl? What does it do? I mean, is that a dog? Mountain lion calls out, whatever he does. He makes noise at him. He's hissing. He's, he's biting. He's trying to get a hold of him. He would tear them limb from limb if he could because he's scared, because he's hurting. But these men, they look past the personal injury and they go up to this guy and they put the little ropes around his neck and the poles and they're holding him still and they free him the trap and then the mountain lion immediately calms down. Whew. And he kind of bounds off and he looks at him and then he runs away and forgets him forever. That's what ministry is like. Okay? You know, everybody who comes to church is hurting in some way or the other. And when we're hurting, we're not usually at our best. It's not who we really are. And so sometimes we can take that hurt out on other people. And you approach that person to help them. Maybe they're in a sin or something else that's about to destroy them, some kind of trap that snared them. And sometimes they can growl and snarl and hiss and bite. 
but you have to love the person enough to care about them enough to still get close, to still help them out, to free them from the trap, at which point they immediately calm down, they take one last look at you, and they forget you forever, okay? You've got to be willing to work in ministry in that way, to love people despite the fact that sometimes people are going to hurt you. Nobody gets out of ministry unscathed. I don't care if you're a pastor or a deacon. We don't get hazard pay, but this is what God has called us to. Okay? Everybody is hurting. So to I, a pastor, he cannot be quarrelsome. We already said he can't fight with his fist. You know what? You can't fight with your mouth either. The Bible says that equally disqualifies both pastors and deacons. If you have a guy who just loves to fight, he loves to debate, he loves to socially dominate people, you are, hear me say this, disqualified. If you're a deacon and you love to fight and you're known as a complainer, you're known as a discord sower, you're known as the one who causes trouble, hear me say this clearly. As a deacon, you are disqualified. We just go, hey, you're not divorced? Thank God. However, you're the source of every contention in this church. Disqualified. Friends, let me say this very, very clearly. So long as I am pastor here, we will not have disqualified deacons or pastors serving in this church. If it proves that you are not any of these qualifications, friends, we're going to have a conversation. So guess what the best thing to do is? Let's repent, God, repent to God now and change. That's what this list is meant to do. We're supposed to look at that for ourselves and go, huh, look in the mirror of God's word and say, is this me? Lord, is it I? Because if you're not, friends, you will be asked not to serve in those roles. You cannot be a quarrelsome person. When I used to teach in Bible college in China, it was often asked when I would teach in sections like this, and they'd be like, um, how can you find out when you first come to a church, how can you find out who the quarrelsome people are? <laughs> so you don't got to find them, buddy. They're going to find you. It will be clear and obvious. Every time there's a contention, this person over here might be the one saying it, but if you talk to them, it always, you know, you keep pulling on that string, they always lead back to the same sweater. And you, you're going back, you're like, oh, it's this guy again. Oh, here we go. Somebody's upset over here. Todd's over here. He's complaining. Let's find out. Todd, why are you sad? Well, I was talking to this guy over here. Oh, there it is. Every time there's a contention, a strife, a complaint, discontent, anger, resentment, arguing, and it keeps going back to the same people, that's quarrelsome. You may think you have good ideas, but you're not handling them the right way. You go to the people privately who are responsible. Friends, if we pull this string back and it keeps coming back to your sweater, friends, you're not going to serve as a deacon. You're not going to serve as an elder in this church. You cannot. You are what the Bible says, disqualified. To Jay, you cannot be a lover of money. Now, this is obvious. You're not going to make a lot of money in ministry. I mean, Brad, did you really join on here at Unity because of just the, did they wave huge money at you? Oh, yeah, right. Some people think they did. I don't know. What are you making on the side that I don't know? Nobody's waving big money at pastors to do their job. Now, a pastor needs to have enough. Okay, so that's for the pastors. Brad, don't be trying to get rich off of UBC. Theron, you know, don't, Theron doesn't have a beach condo in Bali, okay? Not that I know of. If you do, let's talk. But pastors can't be greedy for money. That's not why you join the ministry. There's, are there people who abuse the flock for money all the time? 
your, your health, wealth, and prosperity people, they, they try to get you to give seed money, and they try to get you to buy prayer cloths and every other scheme that they've come up with, and then you hear about them in the newspaper, and they're flying these private jets and going everywhere and living in, like, multi-million dollar houses. Friends, those people are disqualified. You can't be doing that. But let me say this, too. Let me just throw this out there. In defense of Brad Theron and others who are in ministry, the pastor can't be greedy, but the church can't be stingy. Is that right? The church also can't be stingy. The church can't be like, how little can we pay Brad before he finally leaves? Where we just test Brad. How little can we pay this guy before he finally disappears? Because he can't adequately care for his family. And by the way, that happens all the time in churches. The churches are like, let's, let's save as much money as we can so we can have giant parties and, and meals and outings together for ourselves. But let's see how little we can pay the pastors. You do that, friends, you're going to lose good leaders. You have, you have declared with your money what, what they provide is not, is not valuable to you. And so as a church, we can't be stingy with people. Do you know that your, your church's staff, and this sounds self-serving, forgive me, but I'm just going to say it, paying your staff a reasonable wage so that they're not having to stress out for money is your first priority. Why do I say that? Back in the intertestamental period when they would start a synagogue, do you know what they, they would do when they, when, when they decided to make a synagogue? They waited until they had 10 families. Why do you think that is? 10 families tithing made one income for one rabbi. Now you can hire a rabbi. 100% of the church's money now went to him. Why? Because everything rises and falls on your leaders. If you don't pay your leaders well, they're going to have to distract themselves from the ministry or leave and find something else. Friends, that's unhealthy for a church. Without your leaders, without Brad, the youth ministry goes in the toilet. Without Theron, our, our music ministry, it dries up, and we just do what we can in our part-time. And so we take good care of our leaders. What, how good a care? Titus 3.13 simply says this. Paul was sending a couple of guys to be supported by the church for ministry. He simply said, see to it that they lack for nothing. If your pastors are struggling to make it, they have the same needs you do, right? Brad, are your kids going to need braces someday? Probably, just like your kids did. And so they need what you have. They need insurance. They need 401k. They need, you know, God bless them. Give them a bonus. You know, give them cost of living increases. Take care of them the way that a secular, ungodly company who doesn't really care about you, the way that they care about you. Take care of your pastors so that they can take care of you. Friends, it, 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 you, we work together on this. 1 Corinthians 9 says this, For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. I love what Paul says here. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? You see, people used to, when they would plow a field or they would harvest a field, you had this ox and he's doing all this work and they would put something over his mouth so that this ox couldn't accidentally eat a bite of grain here and there as he's plowing the field. The Bible actually forbade that kind of activity. But Paul is applying it here saying, do you really think God is more concerned about oxen than he is about your pastoral staff? Is it really for oxen that God is concerned? He says, does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowmen should plow in hope and the thresher should thresh in hope of sharing the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much that we, re that we reap material things from you? He's saying that to have your pastors serving on just barely enough to get them by, you didn't even do that for your oxen in the Old Testament. How much more for the guys who support you, who visit you in the hospital, who pray for you, who love you? you don't make them rich, but friends, take good care of them. We're not the kind of church that does that. Corinth did that. 
All right, let's move on. 2K, he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how on earth is he going to, that was my ad, by the way. <laughs> how will he care for God's church? So in other words, the, the elder and the deacon, by the way, okay, remember we're still talking about elders and deacons, you need to have exemplary homes. By, by exemplary, it means that you're an example to others in how a home should operate. Now, that doesn't mean that you're flawless. Every one of us, we get, we get little just patches in our marriage where we're just not getting along. We're just bumping heads, and I can't figure out why. Uh, we get times where uh, our kids grow up. You know, they become teenagers, and God, I'm not, I'm not mocking teens, by the way, but where God starts to get you ready to leave the home and to be your own leader. You're supposed to have a little bit of that sense of, I want to take charge of my life so that it gets ready you get ready to follow out and lead yourself later. This is a, it's, it's healthy. We, but as parents, we got to learn how to deal with it in a healthy way. But there's periods of times where our children aren't in submission to us. Does this mean that everybody who has ever had a teen rebel is never qualified to serve as an elder or a deacon? I hope not. None of us would be here. So we're talking about current standing. When people describe your life, you know, when we, when we look over here and we're like, man, we got these deacons over here. We got Gary Hensley back there. We, man, just love his marriage. He's just got such a sweet marriage. I wish we had more families like him. That's what we're talking about. It, you, know, you know, we don't have to, like, dig up Gary's back. You want to share us the worst thing you ever did as a family, brother? He's probably not going to do that. We're not going to do that because what, what matters? What matters is, is he above reproach right now? Or is anybody going to go, why on earth? Why on earth did you put, put Gary here in, in, in charge when you know what his family's like? They have a good reputation. Their marriage is healthy. And healthy means you have healthy conflict, not no conflict. Um, you have healthy relationship with your children. By and large, they're submissive. They're not wild. They're not crazy. They're not out of control. They, don't, they aren't disobedient and disrespectful to their parents. We look at that because if you can't run your own household well, spend the kind of time and attach and, and knit your heart to your children so that they obey you, there's no way you're going to knit your hearts to the people in the church so that they'll follow you. That's what he's saying. If your home is in disarray, right now you ought not be serving as a pastor or a deacon. That's all he's saying there. Let's go to two... L here. He must not be a recent convert, or he may be puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. This word recent convert in the Greek is where we get the English word neophyte. Okay, somebody who is new to something. They're a newbie. They're a new arrival. We cannot put people in charge who is a new convert. Why not? They're untested. You see, some people, uh, they'll come into church. They'll, they'll get a hold of God. They still may not be believers, just because they come to church all the time and they seem excited about their Bible doesn't mean they're believers. How do we know? Jesus told us the parable of the soils. Remember that? Some things, they sprout up quickly and then die. It's not that they lost their salvation. It's that they never really had the real thing. They got excited about this idea of God, but there was never any true repentance. And so we don't just, we don't lay hands on any man quickly. We don't, we don't lay hands on a, a new convert. It says otherwise he becomes puffed up. It's a Greek word that means filled with smoke. He's all smoke and no fire. There's no reality. There's no deep burning embers that are driving that. It's just a bunch of smoke. Looks like there's something big going on, but not really. It's lighter fluid. Okay? It's your husband at the barbecue, and he's playing around. He decides to fire up some... Uh, <laughs> he puts a little too much in there on purpose because he just likes to see things burn. Men do that. That is what a new believer often looks like. We don't know. Is he lighter fluid 
Or is this something that's going to burn for many years? And so we watch people for a long time before we make them elders and deacons. They need to have a track record that we can look at. If we don't, what do they fall into, the Bible says? The condom, they get filled up with conceit. They get proud, right? And they fall under the condemnation of the devil. What was, what was Satan's sin? God gave him this, this great and mighty position. Most powerful, most mighty angel in all of glory. He was Lucifer. But in Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, what did Satan do? He became lifted up with pride. And you have the I wills of Satan. I will be like the most high. I'll make my throne. Okay. He got proud of his position. And Luke says, God cast him from heaven like a bolt of lightning. You will not be proud in my presence. Bible says when you lay hands on a new guy, a neophyte, a new convert, you do it because they're really excited about church. They come every time the church doors are open. They're reading their Bible. They're, they're serving in 15 different activities. They're just so excited about God. And we look at them and go, man, we need them as a pastor. We need them serving as a deacon. Maybe. Let's watch them. Because if you give them too much position too quickly, they can fall under the condemnation of the devil. What was the devil condemned for? Pride. And in the same way, he becomes lifted up with pride into a place of unusability. God can't use that guy anymore because he is proud. 2M, a pastor and a deacon. They must, not be, they must be well thought of by outsiders so that they do not fall into disgrace and into a snare of the devil. Now, this is different than the condemnation of the devil. The condemnation of the devil is what the devil was condemned for. A snare of the devil is a snare that Satan sets out. What is that snare that Satan sets out for all those who are in deacon or pastoral roles? He needs to be well thought of by outsiders to have a good reputation, not just in the church, but even outside the church. The community knows this to be a quality fellow. Because if not, if there are like these skeletons in their closet, they will come out in ministry in time. What is the snare of the devil? He wants your pastor and your deacons to end up on the front page news. Okay, he wants you to be in the newspaper. He wants you to be on the five o'clock newscast. He wants to make a name for you in a bad way. Do we, have some, do we have some Christians who have made a bad name for God recently? Of course, we always do. There are those who fall. I mean, I, I say names like Josh Duggar. You know, I could say names like some of you old timers. You remember Jimmy Swaggart, you know, uh, Jim Baker. You know, we hear about these scandals of priests molesting children, things like that. This is the snare of the devil. If your private affairs are not in order and you don't have a good reputation in the community, you're going to bring it into the church too. This is why, by the way, as a church, you did background checks on me. You're checking with the FBI, making sure, you know, I don't have some weird, crazy skeleton out there because you can't have that in the church. By the way, I commend you for that. A church needs to do that, especially nowadays, so that we don't, don't fall under uh, this snare that the devil sets out for all leaders. So a leader, Christian leader, and this is in summary here, we're done. A leader is to be the people of the empty pot. We got to be people who are willing to do things God's way. Even if we don't see immediate earthly results, we got to do it God's way anyway. There's no other way to do it. And if you don't have elders and deacons willing to do things God's way, friends, they need to be gone. Well, what if they've been a pastor here for, you know, 20 years. Brad, I'm not talking about you, by the way. You know, what if we have a deacon who's been here for 30 years and serving in this role? Friends, they can't continue serving in that role if they don't fit these qualifications. Is that clear? We can't have people who are disqualified serving as examples to the flock. 
And I say this, friends, I, I, I feel like I'm tying my own noose and showing you how to use it, okay? <laughs> if I am not these things, friends, you need to have a conversation. I'm not saying you throw me out right away, but you do have a private conversation. Say, Pastor, I don't know. I see this in my life. Help me understand. Help me to explain. And if I am in defiant, unrepentant state of this qualification, friends, you need to ask me to go. Because a pastor and a deacon, we both fall under these qualifications. We have to be above reproach. People of high moral integrity and, and ethics. And if we're not that, you need to find someone who is. Far more important than somebody of integrity than just somebody who knows how to teach or somebody who makes you feel good. Okay? All right, let's go ahead and close this time in prayer. Father, we, we're grateful today that as we study your word, uh, maybe, again, church governance, probably not top of our list, but God, all of us as a congregation, we need to know what you have said in these areas of pastors, elders, deacons. God, we want to make sure that we have qualified people in place who can, who can lead the way by example, not just like the Pharisees who would preach and lay heavy burdens on people, but themselves wouldn't lift one finger uh, to give effort toward living that way themselves. So God, I pray that as a church, Unity Baptist Church would be known for both elders and deacons who serve well in these ways, who are people of high moral integrity, people who are exemplary, that they can serve as an example for the rest of the flock to follow, that if we reproduce their life in multiple families, that we'd be a better church, not a worse church for it. God, help us, I beg of you, to examine ourselves, both elders and deacons, God, to make sure that we are people who are above reproach, that people cannot point to us and say that we're living in hypocrisy, that we're preaching one thing, we're living another way, we're, we're in spiritual leadership, but, we're, but our life doesn't match up. God, I, I beg of you to help us to be on guard for this. As Satan is laying out these snares for us, as he wants us on the evening news, God, I beg of you that you help us to do whatever it takes, put whatever kind of boundaries are necessary in our life, God, to uphold a high standard for leaders and examples within the church. God, give us elders and deacons who live up to these standards. God, I pray in Christ. Thank you for spending time with us today. If you would like to make a decision to ask Christ into your heart, click on the link in the show notes and we will be able to help you find your way to Jesus. If you enjoyed today's message, give our podcast channel some love by liking and subscribing to it. And as promised, if you would like more information about Unity, you can connect with us at unitybaptistashland.com or on Facebook at UBC Ashland. Thank you for spending the day with us. We hope that you have a blessed day.